Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at a time. Creative minds need creative banking. That's why ATB created the Branch for Arts and Culture, a branch that understands artists don't live by the rules of standard pay schedules, so you can be creative and not have to worry about your checking account. It's a creative space for creative professionals, and just one more way ATB will always be more than just a bank. Visit atb.com slash thebranch to find out how ATB's Branch for Arts and Culture can support your career in the arts. So here we are at the end. Yeah. We uh, got a nice little wrap-up, a brief meeting with the new emperor, and then Mahit was granted leave to return back to LaSalle Station and uh, the life that she had left behind when she first took her journey to the city to take up that ambassador position. A changed woman. More than herself. (laughs) Literally. Okay, you're getting ahead of me here. Don't get all <laughs> don't get all book clubby and metaphorical on me. No, we're just giving a poetical, a textcolonly <laughs> style bookend to uh, to the aftermath, which is what we read last chapter. But that does indeed, as you say, bring us to the end of the book and to our traditional full book club episode, where we can finally sit back and take a look at a memory called Empire by Arkady Martine. As a whole, I take it back. Very apropos. So this is as book clubby as we are going to get I mean, here on our little book club podcast. I like to think that every episode is pretty book clubby. Well, there's no wine. I know you're not part of a regular book club. I am part of like an in-person book club. And there was always wine and snacks. That's fair. But, I mean, we do the analysis mm-hmm. and the discussion, at least to our listeners. <laughs> to each other. Uh, to anyone we, who's listening. We do it chapter by chapter, but I f- still feel that's pretty book clubby. Oh, it's very book clubby. But as you say, most book clubs read the book and then discuss the whole book. And that is what we are here to do today. Yes. So. Also, at least my book club goes wildly off topic. And sometimes we don't discuss the book at all. Sometimes we just we sit just around and, and eat wine. snacks and visit and drink wine. Yeah. Wine is crucial to a book club. I don't think you understand. Well, I hope very much then that all of our read-alongers, mm-hmm. our gentle readers who are with us today, have snugged up with the podcast and a nice woolen blanket and a big glass of wine, maybe some cheese or an assortment of charcuterie. <laughs> As we settle into uh, a bowl of bonbons to discuss themes and motifs and characters, artistic style choices. We will spare you our eating and drinking because nobody needs that kind of lip smacking sound in their ears. <laughs> Some people literally do seek that out. I know. That's a whole subculture. Oh, I know. On YouTube. But we are. We are not a Game of Thrones podcast, nor are we an ASMR podcast. This is true. We are many things, but we are not that. Also, like a traditional book club, we have now gotten wildly off topic. Wildly off topic. Just to 
hammer home the point that we are going full book club this episode. We are good at this. <laughs> All right. So I have in my tiny little notebook of notes uh, two and a half pages of questiony, noty things for us to talk about. Very good. So let's let's start by looking at the Texcol on the Empire as a whole. Very good. Right, because that is our setting. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. We uh, we do get the benefit of seeing it through a newcomer's eyes, albeit a newcomer who's a little informed. So yeah. we're, we're not coming into it there's, totally blind. But there's being informed, and then there's being experienced. Yes. Right. So and, that's where we're at. And Mahit lacks that experience, even secondhand. From her younger version of Yaskander, it's true at the beginning of the book. But I'm what I mean to say is that that makes her a good point of view character for getting to learn this alien culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll come to Mahit. She is, she is on the list. Okay. What I want to focus on first is the the Empire as a whole, mm-hmm. right? Because there's something to be said about about this massive, massive galactic empire, right? That has an entire planet as a capital city, and it seems. Uh, very, uh, it's very set on conquest, not necessarily assimilation. We're not going full Borg necessarily. I disagree. I okay. disagree on that point. Then they, let us talk about it. They do uh, believe very much in assimilation. They're like the Roman Empire of old, and I realize that they're they're more based on uh, kind of an Aztec motif. Uh, but even so, there are elements. Yes. Yeah, but even so, like. Um, in many ways, politically, they're a lot more Roman, and their uh, outlook is a lot more Roman in that they want to expand across the world and make everything Rome. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of their their mindset here. So they are assimilationists. They're not literally assimilating you into a hive mind like the Borg. <laughs> no, no, that's but, what I mean. We're not going full Borg. But it's made very clear in the book that everything that the Texcolonly Empire touches becomes part of the Texcolonly Empire. Even if it's not literal. Even if it's a slow creep? Even if it's a slow creep. So, I mean, LaSalle Station has been trying very hard to resist this, and even they can't. They have they have a person whose job is literally just keeping out outside influences, and she's been driven near to madness. <laughs> uh, she's <laughs> been driven, driven to, like, outrageous sabotage by her lack of ability to do this. And so it is an assimilating culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, I agree with you there. Uh, what I was saying is we're not full Borg. Oh, no. Not I... everything we encounter must become Tex Kalanli immediately. Eh, maybe not immediately, but I think the uh, the long game for the Empire is that eventually everything is Empire. Probably. In all honesty, probably. Yeah. But, well, at the moment, Mahit has bought her little station sometime. Well, they're, <laughs> they're not the priority, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I want to get at, apart from that, is... Why do you think this story is put in that setting? Why do you think Arkady Martin chose to make, to, to create this this glorious and vast-reaching and all-conquering empire? To make them a threat. I realize that sounds simplistic, but they need to be an insidious threat for Mahit to be pushing against. As much as she's there to represent her station, as much as she's in love with the culture, she is a patriot. And she doesn't want her station and her uh, her native way of life to be consumed by this empire that she's kind of in love with at the beginning of the, the story. And so the empire needs to be a threat. And the main threat of the empire is that as benign and benevolent as the current emperor might be, 
the Empire itself is nonetheless a sleeping dragon. Like it wants to greedily consume everything around it. It's it's nature. And that being baked into not just the politics of the Empire, but the culture of the Empire makes it all the more dangerous. The Texclan the Empire is a danger to LaSalle Station. It's just not the biggest danger to LaSalle Station right now. Well that's that's yeah, okay, Darge, that we know of. Darge Tarats's plan is literally to jam the empire down the throat of the others and hope that the they others, wipe each other out and hope the others chokes on the Texcalonly empire on the way out yeah yeah they, he's kind of hoping for for mutual cancellation basically so right? they i think that that's intentional though i think that arkady martin designed a culture that is very attractive and seductive and is, and therefore dangerous. And therefore dangerous. And there is that underlying threat right through the book, from the people Mahit deals with to the politics she's involved with to the literal threat of war from the empire. Mm-hmm. The empire is, is the empire is like a rose. <laughs> and this is I'm going to use the floral motif because it's very uh, apropos. Absolutely, because it's very beautiful on top, but once you get to the stems, it's got all those sharp points, and you need to be careful how you handle it. Otherwise, you're going to get hurt. That is the empire in a nutshell. It's true. No, that's a really good analogy, actually. Yeah. A rose is very fitting and, and accurate, I think. Perhaps a poison rose at that. <laughs> a poisoned rose. All right, so let's move on to the culture. Even though it's presented as a little bit on the dangerous side, right, and we're, we're experiencing the Texcalonly culture from the outside, right, through the eyes of an outsider, it's still very... Beautiful seems like too simplistic a word for it, right? So it's poetry is so important to this culture, and it's and it's deeply ingrained. Poetry affects their architecture. That's saying something. Everything needs to be symbolic, right? Everything needs to mean more than you think it means, right? So I want to talk about the significance of that, because poetry is meant to be all about emotions and symbolism and deeper meanings and when you build a culture around it it seems extra <laughs> is the the most modern word i can put on it um i also wrote an out i wrote here about opulence because that's something we see over and over again uh, specifically in the palace and i mean yeah, most of the action takes place in the palace. The few times that we leave the palace, the opulence drops off. Oh, agreed. But in the palace specifically, where we spend most of our story and deal with most of our characters, everything is is gorgeous and opulent and unnecessarily extravagant sometimes. Your thoughts about Texel on the culture? <laughs> Perhaps it is a statement to the level of decadence in the empire, because you brought up its opulence. Mm-hmm. And it's um, devotion to poetry that the empire is so decadent and so opulent that something as simple and direct as communication can't be simple and direct anymore. It has to be uh, layered and it has to have double and triple meanings. Like nobody gives anyone a straight answer. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be full of metaphor, uh, right? It's something as simple as a note to join someone for lunch has to come with a cryptic cipher. Like it's nothing is straightforward. And I feel like that speaks to the level of decadence in the empire in a way, in an interesting way that they're so, um, they've reached such a level of grandeur 
that the simplest things have taken on religious meanings and deep cultural meanings and need to be as drawn out and as um, unnecessarily convoluted as possible. <laughs> Nothing is simple anymore. Yeah, and I, I think that that speaks a little bit to to the author a bit. I think Arkady Martin likes language. Oh, obviously she does. And I think that this was an excuse for her to maybe flex that a little bit. <laughs> well, she and, wields it beautifully. And uh, bake it into the empire in an interesting way. That's interesting. So our, our discussion of this has brought to mind a quote. And since I, it is a quote, I want to get it right. Uh, I'm going to read it word for word as, as I have found it. This is a quote from John Adams, uh, a famous U.S. politician from uh, 100 to 200 years ago. Long time ago. As okay, American listeners, I apologize. I am bad at that. We are Canadians, and, uh, <laughs> so we must apologize. So our our ignorance about John Adams, who was one of the founding fathers of the United States. Well, yeah, I know that. I but, apologize. But for the life Anita of me, I can't do the math about when he said this. Can't uh, can't figure out when that founding took place. We've had a very long day over here. All right, here's the here's the quote that came to mind. I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. What he's saying is <laughs> we need to get the hard stuff out of the way to try and make life better for the generations in front of us. That's what I get out of that quote. The Texcalanli Empire, to me, feels like they have done this in cycles over and over again, and it's just layers upon layers. Kind of. Of, yeah. <laughs> we have achieved, but then they cycle back down to, all right, well, we're back to the low-level war, and then we have achieved, and look at this beautiful architecture, and, oh, okay, back to fighting and conquest, and we have achieved, and poetry, and they have just built this very like revolving layered culture into this great like huge mammoth thing that they have now. I'm going to point this back to the assimilation comment from earlier. Sure. And um, it's something, if I'm not mistaken, that somebody even brings up in the book, quite probably Six Direction brings up in the book, is that the empire needs to feed to survive. And I think that that speaks to what you're, you're kind of saying here. The empire reaches a level of decadence and then it needs to go and change. It needs to push outward in order to uh, survive. Well, otherwise, decadence otherwise... that has gone stale is not decadent anymore. Exactly. It, it gets stale and it's at threat of collapse. So in order to inject new blood into the empire, as it were, it goes out and it conquers somebody. And I think that that is the cycle that's mm -hmm. kind of repeated in the empire. Yeah. And I think an empire of this size has clearly been through this cycle many times oh it's explicitly stated it's been through mm -hmm. this cycle several times yeah yeah Texcolani culture good times very deep much meaning all right let's move on to talking about our characters and very let's good. start with our main one let's talk about mahit mahit she's pretty great mahit zizmari <laughs> i was thinking about her earlier today when i was trying to come up with things i wanted to talk about this evening uh as we recorded and a question crossed my mind and I think I know the answer but I want it I want your take on it sure so the very end of our story did Mahit actually end up 
with friends? Or is she more is she more like three seagrass and she has ended up with some assets? Um I think she's more like three seagrass and she's ended up with some assets. I would be hard pressed to say that nineteen ads is a friend of Mahit's. I yeah, I feel that's kind of pushing it. I think things ended shakily between her and three seagrass and while i expect that the two of them will remain friendly with one another i don't know that they're quite friends anymore mm-hmm. 12 azalea is or is not dead <laughs> the point is he's out of her life but 12 azalea is also the one character who probably would have been the closest to being a friend to her he was willing to go out on a limb not because of his career not because of his position not because of any other loyalty to her than just he likes her and he wants to help her out. Which yeah. is, I think, why Mahid is so hurt by how unjust his apparent death is. Because he was just a nice guy who was willing to help her out. Like He was such a genuinely and earnestly nice guy who was just willing to help her out and help out Three Seagrass by extension because he also is her friend, even if she's not his. He understands how friends work. Which Three Seagrass does not. um, That we were suspicious of it at first. Like in early chapters, we were like, that guy's up to something. And then it turns out, no, he actually just is genuinely a nice guy. No, he's just good at people. Yeah. And this is what good people do to help other people. Like, yeah. Yeah. I guess why I liked him so much. Um, But he was probably the closest thing Mahit had to a friend. Um. I would be hard-pressed to say that Yaskander is her friend because he's a part of her now. Yeah. He would be more of, like, uh, the her conscience yeah. more than her friend. He's more like her Jiminy Cricket. And, in fact, it specifically states she left a strained friendship behind when she came to the Empire. Like, her best friend back on LaSalle Station and her had a falling out over her leaving. Yeah. And so she kind of ends the book with no friends, which is... Sad. Agreed. Very Um, sad. Especially because earlier on in the book, she does wistfully wish, like, she'd always imagined having socialite Texcalonly friends and being able to go to the salons and have people to gossip with about all the politics. She's at the Emperor's Poetry Contest with her witty Texcalonly friend enjoying drinks and a poetry, like a poetry freestyle. Yeah, and she's miserable. And she's miserable. (laughs) Yeah. Be- because it's exactly what she wanted, but it's not... The context she wanted it in. Yeah. But it's all wrong somehow. It is. It's poisoned. And you feel bad for her. It's, it's poisoned like apparently all the gifts. Because again, the Texcalon, the Empire is a beautiful flower and it's poison. Mm-hmm. And it destroys everything it touches. Yeah. So I would argue that no, Mahit does not have any friends at the end of the book. And that's kind of sad. All right. So it's time to do what we're best at. Wild speculation. Sure. What do you think the eventual single personality of Mahit and Yaskander will be like? Uh, well, it will be mostly Mahit. Oh, no, I know. But, but it says it says early on when we're learning about Imago technology that eventually you sort of meld into being a, a, a person. person, right? You sort of you sort of absorb their personality and become a whole new person personality person. Um, yes, I'm good at words. I don't think that the Mahit who uh, eventually merges more fully with Yaskander is going to be too much different from the Mahit we see at the end of the book. A Mahit who's been tempered by wisdom and experience, mm-hmm. partly the weight of the wisdom and experience that came from being Yaskander, but a Mahit who's more confident 
in her ability to do politics. Mm-hmm. Wink. Um, and at the very least, a little more familiar with yeah. who the players are. And I don't think Yaskander will totally go away. Um, it'll, oh, no, he'll, he'll never f- totally go he'll away. He'll fade out a bit because, if I'm not mistaken, one or two of the other LaSalle counselors in one of the interlude chapters mentions that they can still kind of get the impression of what their imagos have to say or think about their actions. So I don't know that that's necessarily like he'll always be a little voice in the back of her head even if it's even one if that it's doesn't like chime a, in as often an audible voice playing inside her head yeah yeah so and who knows the the residual damage left over from the broken yaskander might leave him as a voice in the back of her head right i think she's going to be a challenge to her psychotherapist when back she when she gets back to the station because she's in a very unique situation hmm. she's had an old broken imago removed and she's only got like ghost traces of that Yaskander left and has been replaced with a new older Yaskander. Like she's been through a weird doubling yeah. of uh, Imago in like a weird black market uh, a kind situation, of surgery way. A situation that she straight up says is rare oh, at yeah. best. Uh, if not unheard of, so I wouldn't be surprised if she goes to her doctors and they're like, "How are you alive? Someone, this is crazy." Someone will be writing an interesting medical paper <laughs> for yes. peer miracle review. of science. That's what she is. I was I've been pondering this one for a little while, and I'm not entirely sure what I think they'll be. I think I think as a person, in assuming that the next book still follows the trials and tribulations of Mahit, mm. which I would expect it might not. It might not, but. My expectation is we will revisit Mahit in some capacity. Very good. Um, I don't expect that she would be much different than the Mahit we get at the end of the book. Mm. I think it depends on how long or how far apart the sequel is from this story. Right? Well, as you pointed out last chapter, the sequel hook is I will call you when I need you. So presumably 19 ads will still be Emperor and Mahit will be our main character. Mm. Possibly. Or at least one of our main characters, if not our focal point protagonist. It is It is so delightfully appropriate that that statement is just vague enough that it could go either way. Well, again, as you said, that's the, that's the sequel hook. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this whole book was really oh, Mahit's first couple weeks on the job. Yeah. Right? That's it. That's all we've got of her. So going forward... Do you actually think she'll be a good ambassador? I think she's we already... don't. We don't really know. We've only seen her first, her first couple, first little bit. I think she already has proven herself to be a pretty good ambassador. She averted a war that would have conquered her station. True. And made a vital alliance with the emperor of the neighboring warmongering nation state. Well, she and, has and bartered with them to get them to attack an unknown enemy who's amassing at the border. I would say that is. A diplomatic coup. Yes. This is, but this is not her day to day. No. Unless it is her day to day, in which case she has a very stressful job. To me, this seems more like one crisis averted and it just happens to be in her first week. Well, the rest of it is all busy work, right? It's answering mail and signing documents. Well, that's what I mean. Do you think she'll be a good ambassador? <laughs> a mindless factotum could do that job. <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, an ambassador can do that job and then also do the diplomatic stuff. And she has proven that she can do the diplomatic stuff. She can do, as the text Kalanli would put it, politics. politics. Yes, okay. So... Yeah, I think she'll be a fine ambassador. Do you think 
she'll be the ambassador for a long time and or meet a similar end to Yiskander. The interesting thing about having the Imago technology baked into the plot is that you can do a legacy character very easily. Mahit mm -hmm. could be assassinated in the next book and then still be in future books. It's true. Because the next ambassador would just have Mahit in their brain. And also Yaskander. So it's Ooh. it's interesting that you can do that with the the technology in the world that Arkady Martin has built here. I don't think Mahit will necessarily meet a grisly end in the near future. I really hope not. But I could see future books being after Mahit has shuffled off and Mahit still being around in an advisory role in someone's brain. I can get behind that, actually. I would I would be okay with that story. It's like, spoiler alert for Deep Space Nine, it's like Curzon Dax becoming Jadzia Dax becoming Ezri Dax. Yeah. You, you still get kind of the same character. Yeah, you always have a Dax. In each iteration, but also a different character. Yeah, I can get behind that. Okay, so one more thing about Mahit before we carry on. Um, lots of, of protagonists in novels are written a little more on the uh, quote-unquote everyman side to make them easily relatable to anyone in an audience. Mahit isn't like that. No, and kind of by necessity, because we're looking at a society that is so far in the future. It is so divorced from our, at least certainly, I'm going to say North American culture, mm -hmm. that by necessity, Mahit is going to be kind of alien as well. She's certainly more normal and more relatable to us than uh, Tex Kalani. Mm, that was going to be my follow-up question. Uh, because she's written so specifically... Is she relatable, do you think? I would say, yeah. She's the young, wide-eyed fish out of water. She's the country bumpkin who's come to the big city for the first time to do the big job. And I think that's relatable right from jump, even with the fact that she's got another personality riding around in her head. And she's a seven to eight foot tall woman who lives on a space station. <laughs> um, I think that, And aren't we all really I inside? think that that still makes her relatable because the situation she's in is extremely relatable. Everyone's been that fish out of water, going to a new job, going to a new city, going to a new school. And that's very humanizing and that's very relatable. And I think that that makes Mahit a good focal point character because you can hook onto that right away. Mm -hmm. Even if it takes a few chapters for you to go, oh, she's eight feet tall. Oh, she's spent most of her life living in a cubicle. And and you do start to see that cultural difference as you get to know her more. But you have that initial thing that you can glom onto mm -hmm. where she's, again, the country bumpkin going to the big city. Yeah. And I think uh, her, her written perspective uh, is very helpful. We spend the whole book inside her head. So Which, we, know, we yeah. know what she's thinking. We know what she's feeling. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to equate that to what we would do in that situation because we know how she feels and we know what she thinks. And that's actually something that left me um, a little frustrated at times in the book, ironically, really? because I wanted to see what was going on around Mahit. And the only other perspectives we got were brief interludes with some of the counselors on LaSalle. It would have been interesting to get into the mind of 12 Azalea or 3 Seagrass and see what was going on somewhere else um and we never get that perspective and well i i don't begrudge sticking with me the whole time and certainly the majority of novels are written from the point of view of 
a protagonist. I'm spoiled by Game of Thrones and its multiple <laughs> viewpoints. But it did, in this book in particular, because there's a lot of intrigue that's happening way outside of Mahit's perspective, and we're only getting her impression of it, it left a lot of dangling threads. It left a lot of situations where it was like, well, what went on with this? And what's going on with that? And what happened here? And why did this happen? What about this whole other thing that we never got back and to? And we don't know. And that's not to say we might not yet find out in future books. Because True. we know that this is the first book in what will be a series. Some of those questions will almost certainly be answered at some point. But it, it, was, it was frustrating at times to be like, I know that something happened. But... Mahit's oblivious to what it was, and we we will never find out because of that. And I wish that we had had the opportunity to see it from someone else's perspective who might have understood what was going on. No, that's fair. All right, enough about Mahit. Read and pedal. I wouldn't call them sidekicks. I would maybe call them supporting characters. What do you think? I would call them supporting characters, absolutely. Sidekick doesn't seem right. No, absolutely not. Calling them sidekicks diminishes them in a way. That I don't feel is appropriate here. They're not there for comic relief. They're not there to be um, a, a viewpoint character for a young reader. They don't need to be rescued. The, yeah, they're not sidekicks. They are supporting characters mm-hmm. for her. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, they're, which is why I said sidekick isn't right. They're her entourage. They're more than that, though, because they're her touchstones to this culture. And they offer her two very different touchstones into the culture too because three seagrass is very much a straight laced uh liaison she's in the bureaucracy in the institution she's happy in the bureaucracy in the institution she's there to do a job and she's going to do it well and personal feelings aside 12 azalea is the guy who's a little more (laughs) loosey-goosey and whereas three seagrass offers like the prim and proper view of a of an officiant, a bureaucrat, a courtier mm-hmm. in this culture. Twelve Azalea's kind of the corruption in that system. He's the guy who's greasing the wheels to get things done. Even though he's benevolent and he's good and he wants to help his friends, he's the guy who knows a guy. Yeah. And he's the guy who knows people outside of the palace and who has friends who are maybe in the seedier side of things. And so he's the touchstone to not palace culture, whereas Three Seagrass is very much the touchstone to palace culture. Yeah. If Three Seagrass is the trade, Twelve Azalea is the tricks of the trade. (laughs) He's the craft. Yes, exactly. The trade craft. Exactly. Uh, Which is appropriate because they're both ostensibly spies. They both work for the Ministry of Information. Yeah, more or less. It's just that uh, Three Seagrass is more like an analyst and Twelve Azalea is more like an agent, I guess would be the best way to kind of describe that. Yeah, yeah, I can get behind that. Twelve Azalea goes out and networks. He knows people. He can evade people. He knows how to sneak. Mm-hmm. Three Seagrass collates information. She cuts through red tape. She gets through bureaucracy. Yeah. They're two different kinds of spy. <laughs> and uh, surprisingly good supports for Mahit because she happens to need both of those things in spades. Yeah. She needs someone who can help her with the information and with the bureaucracy and she needs someone who can get stuff done for her. And they both offer her those skills. Yeah. So two really well-suited companions, I would say. Yeah. So despite the fact that you spent this entire book not trusting Three Seagrass at all, ever, uh, did you find her to be likable? Yes. Because I liked her. Just because she's not fully trustworthy doesn't mean that she's not likable in fact that makes that that makes makes her yeah that makes it almost kind of worse that she's not trustworthy um there's a lot that 
kind of goes on with three seagrass, which is just suspicious enough that it constantly kept me on my toes. Uh, from even though at no point in this book did she do anything betrayal esque, overt. Again, we're not privy to Three Seagrass's thoughts. I she know. may have betrayed Mahid at some point, and we don't know. I'm just saying. I don't believe that she necessarily did. I'm just putting that bug in your ear. She spent a day in the hospital after being electrocuted by the city. She knows people. She made some suspicious comments that made Mahit prick up when they were on their way up to Eight Loop. We don't know whose creature Three Seagrass is, and she is certainly someone's creature. Because someone assigned her to work with Mahit, and we don't know who. That's fair. But in the end, Three Seagrass proved steadfast. Yeah. From at least Mahit's point of view. So, so if she's playing, if she's playing a game, it's a long con. Uh, well, if she, she was pretty straightforward with the main game she was playing right from get go, she was getting assigned to Mahit because she wanted to advance her career, and at the end of the book, she's done exactly that. So, success. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we could talk about all the people and settings and characters to death, but we only have so much time in this podcast. So let's take a step back and let's look at some of the uh, works as a whole kind of questions. If this turns into a a very like grand and and very ongoing series, I'm not talking just a sequel or two, like a series, four books plus. Yeah, exactly. Would you want to read it? Would you be into it, you think? I think I'd be interested to see what happens. Yeah? Yeah. This, the, the world is built, even if she wrote, like, completely different storylines following a completely different set of characters, just all in the same world. Would you be into it? Sure. I think I would. At I least, love this world that she built. I at, think it's fascinating. Yeah, at least for a sequel, I'd be willing to uh, tune in. If the sequel proved to be bad, <laughs> I might not go in for a third helping, but... I certainly, Arkady Martin has uh, earned enough cachet with me on the first book that I would definitely read the next one. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's good to know. I desperately want this to be a, a TV series, like a miniseries. You say that about literally every book. I do you, not. You've pictured... Have I really? Oh, no. Thinking about uh, about some of the scenes that you want to see. You did it in Moonshine. I'm sure you did it in Artemis. Maybe. The reason I want this one to be made into something visual for me is because of the beautiful visuals she built of this world. I want to see the production design. I want to see these palace ballrooms with these beautiful, like, creeping lights, right? I want to see this rose gold tower that they built. I want, to, I want someone to imagine it and make it happen so that I can see it. Okay. That's what I want. Fair enough. Someone but make this you... happen. Would you be disappointed if it didn't match your internal perception of it, your mm. own personal image in your mind? Not if it was done well. Because that's a legit criticism that some people have. Like, if you go and read Game of Thrones now, does Tyrion look like anybody other than Peter Dinklage in your mind's eye? See, that's not a fair question for me because I both read and watched the first book and the first series at the same time. But it doesn't matter. And this is a, this is a question that's open for anybody who's listening right now who has read Game of Thrones. Has the show, Game of Thrones, totally supplanted your internal vision of how George R. R. Martin's world looks? Does Tyrion look like what you originally thought he looked like in your mind's eye, or does he look like Peter Dinklage now? My guess is, for the majority of people, and I'm not necessarily saying for everyone, the answer is yes, he looks like Peter Dinklage now. 
because Peter Dinklage was very well cast as Tyrion. Very. But even so, that means that the directors and the production designers and the show's vision for that character has supplanted your own. You're now seeing their vision, not your vision. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's bad. That's not good. There are a lot of people who don't like to watch shows based on books that they enjoyed specifically because they don't want that. They don't want it ruined. If you reread Lord of the Rings, will you be seeing Peter Jackson's movie in your mind's eye? Uh, maybe because when I watched Lord of the Rings, like years after I had read the books, it looked like it was supposed to in my head. Or at least which close means that enough. my close enough, my imagination really closely matched the production designer's vision. And that's fair, but at the same time, you're still seeing their vision. Yes, now. I know. And not necessarily the vision that Tolkien was putting on the page. And not necessarily the image that you were picking up off the page. Now, And this is not me trying to poo-poo the idea of doing <laughs> a TV series based on a memory called Empire. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just bringing up an interesting point. Oh, no, I agree. Which is when you translate something into a movie or a television show and you take something that's written and you translate it to a visual medium, in some ways you are imprinting your vision of it onto the book. And that can change a person's perspective. Yeah, especially if it doesn't look right, quote unquote, Yeah, to what they think it should look like. Kind of, yeah. So I, I think if someone with a very vivid imagination and a big enough budget could really impress me. Fair enough. With with some of the with some of the beautiful stuff in this book. Maybe so. And I'm not saying that they might not. And I'm not saying that Arkady Martin should now be hanging up on calls from Hollywood. <laughs> That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just I'm again, I bring it up as an interesting point of conversation and an interesting thing to think about. Okay. Super generic question. What was your favorite part? Um, my favorite single part of the book might be the poetry contest. <gasps> That's what I was going to say. Just because I think it's the most visually interesting and it's got a lot of interesting characters, unfortunately some of whom don't return in this novel and I hope return in future ones. Like 30 Larkspur, we don't really see much of after this point. True. Um, the alien ambassador who she encounters. Yes. I think would have been an interesting character to have come back in her ambassadorial salon. I mm -hmm. think that would be an interesting thing to see. And the emperor's grand entrance and the poetry that shocks the nation. Um, I think that's all very interesting. And I think that would be, that would be interesting yeah, to see. That, that whole scene, the hummingbird garden afterwards, just... It's it's a big party, and I bet it, and it was it was fun. It's a very much a centerpiece for the story. It's not the climax of the story. No, but it's a big it's a big important chunk, and it's it was really well written, and I I really enjoyed how the story flowed along during that party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So look at that, we have the same favorite part. Yeah, I, I don't know. We are married. I don't know that it's necessarily my only favorite part. No, no, no. But uh, it's most, most it's favorite. The first thing that comes to mind. If you ask me what my favorite part is. All right. If you had to summarize the theme of this book and or why do you think Arkady Martin wrote this book, what would you say? Let's let's get really philosophical here. What is what is our author trying to say with this grand work of hers? Well, I mean, the word memory is right in the title. And a great And as do, such, it has a great many meanings. Indeed. And it's uh, 
it's definitely a theme that runs through the entire novel because we're dealing with a culture that is very that has a far-flung memory that it is very anchored to it's about an emperor an ailing emperor who wants to cling to the memory of the peaceful times that he's enjoyed mm -hmm. rather than risk the future it's uh about a woman who's literally got an of the memory of another person in her brain it's a book about it's a book about characters and a culture that are on the precipice of moving into the future but are facing backwards the whole time and that is progress in reverse no they're not they're not moving oh, no, sorry. backwards sorry ba backing into progress yeah they're not they're not like backing they're not moving backwards they're moving forward they're just facing backwards yeah, while they're doing exactly. it yeah exactly so they're backing into it and that's kind of an interesting motif throughout the whole throughout the whole thing oh absolutely yeah it's a good uh it's a good running theme for for like all of the various characters and all of their storylines yeah so i would definitely say that for me at the very least the one of the big themes that stood out was memory mm -hmm. no that's very succinct very well put you're all you're all smart and stuff because i can say there are several themes in the book but you're right. the The main one running through it is has to deal with memory, and and I think I think summarizing it as backing into progress is is pretty good, <laughs> surprisingly accurate. Yeah, and we'll have to see if that carries on through the rest of the series, or if that's just kind of here. Mm -hmm. We'd have to wait and see. Yeah. So with that said and done, we finally close the back cover of A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin. And that means that it is time next week to pick up a new book and uh, begin reading along all over again. Mm -hmm. Now, we did a Twitter poll, as mentioned last episode. Yep. And the four genres that we put up for vote were horror, mystery, fantasy, and science fiction, because we want to kind of stick in the genres. Yeah. Um, and despite horror having an early lead and fantasy getting... Almost no love whatsoever. Oh. Uh, Sci-fi and mystery ended up tying for the most votes. And so we set out to find a sci-fi mystery. <laughs> and, and I believe we have succeeded. We may have succeeded. In Metropolis, the gleaming city of tomorrow, the dream of the great American city has been achieved. But all that is about to change unless a neurotic, rule-following bureaucrat and an irreverent, freewheeling artificial intelligence can save the city from a mysterious terrorist plot that threatens its very existence. A thrilling, funny, and touching story of friendship and adventure, The Municipalists is a tour de force of imagination that trenchantly explores the modern American city and questions the role of artificial intelligence in our human future. Our next featured novel, On the Read-Along, is The Municipalists by Seth Freed. Ta-da! So you'll want to find yourself a copy of that. It came out this year. It is available in a softcover edition. Yes, so it should be readily available to most people. Indeed. And you'll want to snap that up. You're going to want to crack it open. You're going to want to read the prelude. It is not labeled as such, but there is a short chapter before chapter one. Yeah. That is what we will be reading for next week. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the beginning of the municipalists. Yeah, we'll see you we'll see you next time. We start a whole new book, a whole new adventure. Indeed. It'll be great. Well, you get set for that. <laughs> you can uh, of course tune in to listen to any number of other 
podcasts oh, from the Alberta Podcast Network. So while many. You, while you wait for that next episode. Yeah, by all means. Uh, such as this one. Hi, y'all. This is Ryan from the Eat More Barbecue Podcast. I'm just a guy that loves slow-smoked southern barbecue. I love eating it, I love cooking it, and I really love talking about it. I want to help grow the barbecue culture here in Alberta, and this podcast is a great way for me to share the stories of the people involved in the barbecue community, like restaurant operators and competitive barbecue cooks. Along the way, I also visit with other folks like farmers, distilleries, breweries, and anything of interest to barbecue people. A new episode comes out every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep on smoking, folks. So there we go. Eat more barbecue. Yeah, who doesn't love a good barbecue? Right? In the middle of winter. <laughs> hey, this is the time of year when you start to miss having barbecue. Uh, speak for yourself. I know, you barbecued steaks the other night. Yeah. Uh, one of the first things I do is shovel the path to my barbecue. And there is something to be said about a good winter barbecue. Standing over a hot grill while the snow is falling, cooking up some, some foods. It's good times. I know, but not everybody is as diehard as you. Fair enough. So once the snow comes, a lot of people have to give up on their own backyard grilling. That's fair. There you go. Now there's a podcast about it to make you hungry. <laughs> uh, you can check that podcast out and all the others uh, right now on the Alberta Podcast Network dot com website. Yes. Uh, or the CKUA app. That's there too. Where they are all, uh, the read-along included, mm -hmm. generously hosted. Wherever fine apps are found. Yeah. Also, whenever fine podcasts are found. Really, yeah. most people try to spread themselves out to be accessible everywhere. Uh, if you've got friends who are into books, uh, this is a good jumping on point. Tell them, hey, yeah, pick up the municipalists. Yeah, and check it out. Or by all means, go and check out any of our previous books. Uh, we have several of them that we've read now. And the beauty of a podcast is you can just go back and pick one up whenever you want. <laughs> and I'm under the impression that we're about to say goodbye to some listeners uh, until we're done this book. So that because they'll pick it up and just binge the whole thing. Yeah, quite possibly. You can also find us on social media. Yes, the standard collection, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. We're at that's our standard collection anyway. We're at the read along at pretty much all the above. Yeah, you can send us an email if you like, if you want more words than than, than social media allows. Yeah, we're the read along at gmail.com. Yep, Scott still promises to check it. And with that said, we'll see you next time as we start The Municipalists by Seth Freed. Yeah, new book time. Woo! Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. Goodreads.com.